This is officially episode three of the Plowline podcast. However, today it's going to be an introductory release. We had two very special people on the podcast on Tuesday evening, November 20th, Vern Renville and Roger Fernandez. Both are good friends of ours and active members and ambassadors of the Seattle arts community. Vern is an enrolled member in the Lake Traverse Sioux Tribe. Social activist, mother, friend, and a powerful voice in our broader community for social change and a steady presence for community empowerment and responsibility. She has been the ongoing proprietor of Snag Productions and executive director of Red Eagle Soaring, a Native American youth theater company based here in Seattle. More details can be found at RedEagleSoaring.org. Byrne is also the newly appointed director for an exciting project being developed in New York at the moment and we will let her tell you all about it. Roger Fernandez is a member of the Lower Elwha Band of the Sklalem Indians from the Port Angeles area of the state of Washington. He is an activist and storyteller and uses his impactful gifts for shifting paradigms and changing how we look at stories throughout the region and beyond. Roger is a prolific artist in multiple mediums and is well known for his public and community art contributions in municipalities throughout the Pacific Northwest. Our goal in building this podcast is to interview and converse with interesting people on diverse subjects. My co-host, Jerry Ibalarosa Tunnell, is the principal consultant for Code3Consulting.net and executive director for Navahine Okamana, the Power of Women Summit, hitting the Pacific Northwest on May 11, 2019, at Discovery Hall, University of Washington, Bothell Campus. I am your host, Jeremy Tunnell, artist, writer, change leader, and a guy with a day job. From the day I became friends with Jerry, we believed the world was more than we were being taught. It was not just round, but spherical. It was not just here, but multidimensional. The world was as we made it, and we aimed to help all of us make it better. The Plowline Podcast is about showing you that process and sharing in this journey together. This isn't just about broadcasting ourselves, but also working to receive. Our world is full of change and change opportunities for each of us to contribute in. We start with the questions and ongoingly seek better questions. I hope you will join us and grow with us. The chairs squeak. There's an occasional jet overhead, and the studio is our former dining room, but this is it. The Plowline Podcast. Here we go. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this Tuesday edition of the Plowline Podcast. Tonight, we have two very special guests. 
Fern Renville and Roger Fernandez. And without further ado, Fern, why don't you get us started? My name is Fern Naomi Renville, and I am Sisseton Wapiton. I'm a member of the uh, Lake Traverse Sioux Tribe, um, also known as Sisseton Wapiton Oyate. Um, we're a Dakota band. Uh, our homeland is the Twin Cities, but um, we were relocated after the Sioux Uprising to South Dakota with our Lakota cousins. And um, I live in Seattle now and am a theater artist and have um, gotten to have this really fun experience of directing a staged reading of a play in New York City that um, it's called City Bull's Last Waltz, and it's a musical written by a fellow named John Slicer, who's originally from Nebraska. This is the third um, iteration of this production. It was performed in L.A. and Lincoln, Nebraska, and now it's being um, further developed for a full stage production. And... um, this is part of the process of building the play and workshopping it with a cast. And um, uh, if you're a theater person, New York City is Mecca. So I feel like, okay, certain I can certain things are complete now in my life story. <laughs> but um, it was really fun. And, and um, it's the story of Sitting Bull's time with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, which is like this whole weird episode in American history because like within the space of seven years Sitting Bull goes from being like a foe on the battlefield with Buffalo Bill to being in um, cat fellow cast members in a stage production and um, as a native actor and theater person I um I'm exploring this whole new, discovering this whole new relationship with Sitting Bull is like my mentor who went 150 years before me on stage. And I didn't really understand that before I got involved in this project. I mean, I understood that Sitting Bull had been in the Wild West show, but I really hadn't like learned um, the background of the story and, and understood some of the things like the fact that his own Wild West show, which was called the Sitting Bull Combination, predated Buffalo Bills, and he was on tour with his own native Wild West show before he got recruited by um, by uh, Annie Oakley to be in Buffalo Bills show. And then I think I also, like, maybe dismissed it out of hand as a purely exploitative relationship. Mm-hmm. But looking at it and learning more about it, I've had to like acknowledge that the native participants in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show had a choice. They could either stay on the reservation and be like starved and humiliated by Indian agents, or they could go on tour and make top dollar and take their whole families and all their relatives with them so that which was encouraged by producers because they would set up like a indian village and oh. that was like a an attraction <laughs> for people to come to the show and but in that like even if it was a somewhat um 
I don't even know how to describe it, but a provisionally allowed Indian village. <laughs> in fact, in that space, the cultural expressions that were no longer allowed on the reservation were allowed to be practiced. Really? Oh, like, yeah. Like dance and... Exactly, because really? that was, you know, going to attract people to the show. Um, and then for me, also another part of the story that's really fascinating is the story of Annie Oakley and her friendship with Sitting Bull and the fact that she was, she was not an orphan, but she was, um, she had a, her mom was a widow who put her in the workhouse because she was too poor to feed her. So Annie Oakley grew up being like shopped out to farm families for free labor and she experienced all this like horrible abuse. But she transcended that, and just like Sitting Bull, she was allowed a certain kind of um, gender, you know, some role nonconformity on stage that she she couldn't have that in the society of that time, the polite society. Women didn't get to behave in the ways that she did, and Indians didn't get to behave in the way that Sitting Bull did on stage. So in some really weird, <laughs> twisted way, the Wild West show actually was a f was was a um, f was a vehicle for cultural preservation and sustenance and community and all these things that um, Sioux people couldn't have living under the thumbs of Indian agents. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the the whole thing was overseen by the Office of Indian Affairs, and it was very much a commercial sort of thing. So the Indian agents would get kickbacks, literally, from producers who would get a crew of Indians to take as casts on their shows. And it was at the time, so when Sitting Bulls, um, when they landed in New York City, they had sold out audiences and shows. He was a huge sensation. In, not just in New York City, actually, but wherever he went. And it was, um, I think, really surprising to the Office of Indian Affairs <laughs> that he was such a celebrity and so popular on tour. And they were very threatened by the idea of the way that he was using the Wild West show as a celebrity platform to share Indian stories and ideas and perspectives. And... Um, the uh, it was the Office of Indian Affairs and the and specifically the person of the um, Indian agent named McLaughlin who put the kibosh on Sitting Bull touring for just that reason he was the government was threatened by how popular he was on tour how he had become a celebrity and how he had won sympathy from non-native audiences for who he was I didn't realize he he had been removed from touring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long did he tour for? You know? It was uh, three years. So it was really short. It was actually a short span of time. But it's funny because when you think about the American West and our mythology of how the West came to be, the Wild West show is like a big piece of that. Mm -hmm. So there's like some scholars who talk about how the Wild West show, which was actually um, shaped by Sitting Bull. <laughs> was this really formative piece of the American entertainment style and that modern rock shows look a lot like the Wild West show. It's like that kind of format for entertainment was born here. It's like a totally American um, construction. Oh. Um, what's 
kind of weird, <laughs> and I'm still like trying to figure out how to understand this, is that there is in fact right now still a Wild West show that's wildly popular being performed several times a day. It is located at Europe's Disneyland. In really? The, yes, yes. And guess what? It's almost a completely historically correct reenactment of the Whoa. original. Yeah. And it's hugely popular. And 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 it's a huge source of employment for native performers who want to go to Europe and do that kind of work. So so it's weird how um it's weird how this certain dynamic is still happening of kind of white purveyors of a commercial story in which natives play a part. And it's part of presenting a white mythology. Um, I actually know people who are native performers who've gone and worked over there, and it's I'm like I said I'm I I'm still struggling to figure out like how do you reconcile those things as a native person and not feel exploited by it, um, but um, uh, especially coming from Disney. <laughs> That's a, that's a tough sell. <laughs> but but this story, so this play is is um, well. It's interesting to me that this is so this is written by a, a white playwright, uh, John Slicer, and his perspective is as a as a white playwright. But it does tell this story of the um, various non-native people who had all their agendas and the reasons they were there and kind of why things went down, which was basically about removing the land, separating Indians from their land. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a piece of history that needs to be shared more, in particular because it's completely relevant. Like, look at the things that have happened just this past month. There was the um, Wampanoag tribe was legally terminated no yeah. longer exists like huh the federal government has the power to say that you do not exist yeah. as a native person anymore what <laughs> but um and then look at the other termination efforts afoot in the midwest in particular pertaining to oil and gas and pipelines mm-hmm. so there's like he there's really if you look at one, one thing that's interesting about being in new york uh state is I, I went upstate and visited some friends and just to see how small public lands are on the East Coast. Yeah. The West Coast and Indian land, Indian country, has huge tracts of public land in a way that the East Coast doesn't. And those public lands are at places like Crow Agency, where there's like North America's largest gas shale reserves. It's like those lands represent huge profits to the oil and gas industries that are hell-bent on turning our planet into just a fascist fried crisp. and um, Profitable. <laughs> profitable <laughs> fried crisp. But, but Indians are still being separated from our lands. The white people are still trying to break our sovereignty and get us to think of ourselves as individual Americans instead of collective members of a tribe. Mm -hmm. And um, to get us to sign on to capitalism. Those things are all still happening more intensively now than ever. So this is a good story to tell and I'm um, 
having fun and it is you know there's various stresses and challenges around working with a non-native creative team um, to tell this story well and to feel like I my my goal is like sitting bulls descendants could sit in the front row and they'll be inspired and excited to see this and I'll be proud to have them see it that's like those are my audience that's the audience I want to please yeah um, and so um, all the nuts and bolts of that are are, uh, <laughs> are what, what I'm um, engaged in. And anyway, it's been fun, and I'm uh, l- learning so much. <laughs> you go back in February again for another... Yeah, in February there will be another staged reading, and this is just to, like, it'll work out the next, um, right now, hopefully. <laughs> the playwright is busy working on his revisions. Wherever you are, John, if you're out there. No. <laughs> Get it done. <laughs> We're waiting. <laughs> um, but, um, um, and, you know, and that's fascinating, too, just to see what that's like the whole process of writers writing in literally like kind of in collaboration with a you know you've got a dramaturg a director a music director your producers and everyone's got a hand in pushing the script along and the um like i said i'm learning so much about what are the decisions that need to be made in a script and what are the practical considerations that a producer looks at Mm -hmm. and that's all helping me as a director to um learn more and 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 I also just feel like um, I told this to Roger that it was also kind of felt like a confirmation for me because I treated my cast in the exact same way that I would treat a group of Native kids. <laughs> it's like they got the same kind of support and encouragement. And I am not about being a director in the conventional sense. I I think of myself more as a facilitator and. What I'm doing is helping all of the cast to tell the story and contribute equally. And that's not how conventional theater is structured at all. And New York theater is the epitome of that. (laughs) And so bringing my indigenous sensibility to theater making is, is, you know, there's, it's a learning process for everyone involved. Um, But um, I'm, I feel like some things are changing (laughs) in this world. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Obviously. Obviously. That's awesome. So you go back in February, you're going to do another stage reading. Is that in front of an audience or is that just working it out? It is in front of an audience. Um, So this audience that we just had was what's called a friendly faces audience, meaning only an invited guest list because they don't want anyone to see the play in the incomplete state that it's in right now. We're still working on it. so we'll we'll have to see we'll see what kind of decision for what what audience. But typically for a staged reading, it is often a limited audience. And this is this is a whole process, right? Like this it, is a whole like process. This is, this is not a unique process. This is the process. This is it, how it works. If yeah. you want to produce a play, and um, it's not unlike getting a book published, in that there's usually hardly anyone just like spits out their first draft and it's ready to roll. Yeah. You know, usually there is um, some trial and error involved, and I think that um, you really and you don't really know what a play is until literally you see just a staged reading of it gives you an idea of what it can be. Have the story on its legs so you can see it a little on stage, and um, so that's 
the that's the staged reading or the table reading process. So describe for me where this could go, right? Like let's let's pretend, let's imagine that uh, you know that all right, it's going to do a second stage reading. Um, I would imagine some some are like all right, you know, the second one works it out, and they're like, great, we're going to go into production, or they're like, there's we're not going, there's nothing here, um, and someone probably have another stage reading and. Um, you know, so let's go down that track, you know, like, like, let's say that this is going to go to stage and, and, you know, like where, yeah. where could something like this go? Well, so conceivably, and of course, once again, this is like every theater nerd has this idea, <laughs> this fantasy of like, you're going to be on Broadway. Right. So, um, in fact, the creative team, uh, on this project are, veterans of Hedwig and the Angry Inch and they've been on Broadway and they have Tony Awards and they're like professionals and so part a lot of it is like trusting their instincts for um, what is going to get seats in the audience in New York City or wherever it is now so this stage reading was in New York City and I think that um, everyone wants to do it there um, it was challenging to cast Lakota roles in New York City because there's just a limited pool of Sioux actors there. Mm -hmm. And um, not to say that it's impossible, but um, there seemed like there was some sort of consensus among producers that this would be easier to cast, actually we all agreed, <laughs> in either Minneapolis or L.A. where there are much larger pools of native actors. Mm -hmm. And Minneapolis has a huge theater scene and has new native theater and uh, annual theater festival that they put on every f summer. And, and so literally the, um, the reason also that I got uh, this gig was that the playwright um, was at, a, uh, he was an audience at um, new native theater uh, festival this summer and saw something I directed there and so um, actually I need to give a shout out to New Native Theater in Minneapolis which is the only theater company in America that I know that is putting on 100% Native productions all the way from the writers to the artistic wow. team to the actors and it's the only place where as a Dakota director I've had the opportunity to direct three plays now written by Sioux people, which to me is just like, that's like, it doesn't get any better than that. As a Dakota director to get to direct Dakota stories, like, and, and, and literally it doesn't happen anywhere else for me. So I'm incredibly grateful to Rihanna Yazi, who is the Navajo artistic director and founder of New Native Theater. They're now in their 10th year wow. in Minneapolis and just like amazing, just the things they're doing too, to just give regular community folks a chance to try on theater and then get sucked in. <laughs> right. That's so it's, awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's cool. Very cool. So um, last time we were here, um, well, actually, let's go back to, um, to Disney and, uh, and the, the show. <coughs> Roger, you had said that, um, that uh, Europeans were um, particularly fascinated with Native Americans. Did I? Yes, you did. 
You, you uh, told a story. I, I did. I okay. I um, know that my brother told me a story when he was in the military in Germany. He said they were going down the autobahn in a car. He and his wife. And they saw teepees out in the field, and they said, what that? And they drove over, and he said it was one of the biggest powers he'd ever seen. Um, but there were no Indians there. It was all uh, white people in Germany who just loved to, I'm going to call it play Indian. Really? Um, yeah. And so uh, there is a huge um, interest over there. Uh, I know that uh, I taught a class on um, natives in cinema, and, uh, cinema, and uh just to make sure I wasn't just narrowly defining it in terms of American film, I kind of expanded it. And it turns out there's huge, um, to this day, uh, number of films being made with a Native American theme performed by Eastern European actors or European actors. Um, a few decades ago, there were some, I guess, very iconic um, film series that were made with white folks being Indians. I think that there's a... I don't know. I mean, I, I try to look at it in terms of uh, what they lost in terms of their colonization, that they were colonized a thousand years before us. Um, and so those tribal roots were presumably eradicated. But you see that desire to not forget those things, to try to touch base. There is a... Uh, clicking around YouTube, I found... a couple European bands that are totally prehistoric, pre-Roman conquest, just um, wearing deer antlers and wearing, you know, fringe clothing and everything. And they're deadly serious. They're not like just pretending. They're singing the old, old songs. People that commenting are saying, this song comes from like, you know, 5,000 years ago, pre-whatever. Wow. And I just remember listening. It was fascinating music because they kind of updated with amplifiers and um, a couple modern instruments. By and large, they're chanting. Um, they're singing old language, an old European language. And uh, I just loved one of the um, comments because people really liked it. Uh, there were A lot of people were just making these just funny comments. But one lady said... Um, I played this music and my dachshund heard it and ran out in the woods and hasn't come back since. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially become wild again. Yeah. <laughs> Turned into right. a little wolf and took <laughs> off into the woods. Uh, I think that it's um, an interesting um, relationship between European knowledge of Native people uh, and their interest in that knowledge that I think um, precedes our colonization. Uh Oftentimes, when you look at the mythic stories of people from all around the world, they seem to have the same kind of story undertones that somehow we share these stories. Um, and so I think that uh, some of the complex European mythic stories, um, they don't necessarily dovetail, but they in many ways match the, the stories they were hearing from Native America. Mm -hmm. And... So for me, then, there's just all kinds of reasons. I'm not a European. I haven't been to Europe, so I can't say outside of my brother's comment that it's just crazy over there. Um, I know that I read a comment from a, a native speaker, and several native speakers had gone together on a, on a tour to make various presentations and lectures at universities in Europe. And he said that... Um, we were constantly being asked, we understand the struggles of Native people in America, which is true. They probably know more over there about Native Americans than the average American here will ever learn. Um, and because it's within their 
interest in their educational system. Uh, but he said, they would always ask, so we understand your struggles. What can we do to help you? And he said, we heard that so much that we had to sit down together as Native people and say, what should we say to them? And finally, they came to the response, you come from Indigenous people. You come from your ancestors. They were just like my, my ancestors. And so go back and find their ways. Go find knowledge of your own ancestors before they were colonized and then come talk to us because yeah. then we'll be speaking a similar language. So that's the way you can help us. Find out your own pre-colonial roots and then we will speak the same language then. Yeah. Um, you told me that a long time ago and that was very significant. I find it interesting and uncanny uh, that uh, that it's a it's in Europe where they have um, uh, you you know Europe's Disneyland that they have the the Wild West show like that's very interesting. <laughs> it is so weird. <laughs> Clearly, an audience for it. Hugely. Yeah. Just just a couple years ago, I think there's a Paris climate accords or something were going on there something and there was like a that. video i saw of a, a sami a young sami woman some of the indigenous people they call, used to call them laplanders of of the finland area and they're indigenous people um and they trace their indigenous roots to very recent times but this young girl standing there and she's speaking to the camera in her language and she says hold this rock hold this rock and when you begin to feel its heartbeat then you'll be able to understand and then she begins to walk, and it's the kickoff of, a, by, I think it's about from Finland, where they live way up in northern Finland, all the way to Paris is like a thousand miles. But there were a lot of them just walking there because they wanted to make their indigenous voice heard. Mm. Um, and so that European uh, prehistory uh, before Roman um, occupation, uh, I think that they, you might see that in places like the, the Sami um, villages are still up there. So that idea, when I saw that young girl, I said, damn, that's a Native American talking, and then realizing, of course, they're all around the world. Indigenous people are all around the world, mm -hmm. and they come in all kinds of colors, mm -hmm. and they hold very, very deep traditional knowledge and wisdom, and it's good that we have opportunities to share that. Um, and I think that that's uh, uh, an ongoing, an ongoing issue. That when will one culture believe it has something to learn from indigenous cultures versus it has nothing to learn from indigenous cultures? In fact, they are the instructors. In indigenous cultures must only learn from them. Mm -hmm. So, whatever is going on in Europe, I mean, I'm hoping it's cool, but uh, maybe I'll have to go there. Disneyland, you say? Okay, we'll start there. <laughs> All right. Hey, Rod, how do you define? Um Indigenous. Indigenous. Um, being a storyteller and hearing many storytellers tell the mythic story of the creation of the world and creation of human beings, you get one level of meaning that this is where we are, this is where we come from, this is how we came into the world. So for me then, the people that are able to trace that mythic story to their tribal nation creation, then that to me is part of that indigenous identity. Um, that exists all around the world as well. People have their creation stories that tell all these things. And so if they're able to link their creation to a certain place, a certain um, region, then they're indigenous to that place. Uh, so at some point, everyone had to be indigenous, I guess. But how long ago some cultures can trace back to that 
original source is, is uh, I guess, challenging. The fact that we still have the idea of um, our connection through creation, through spirit, with a certain land that we live on, um, to me, that that's probably the most comfortable way of uh, defining indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because there's this big, I don't know if it's a controversy, it's just a discussion point, that when Christopher Columbus kind of stumbled on the New World and, and decided to enslave the people and, and uh, look for gold everywhere, um, he is said to have called them um, indios, which indigena and indios, all those words are Latin base, all go back to the same meaning apparently. And it was interesting because um, he he was not looking for a place called India. This is what the story is now, because no such place existed. There was no India then. There was a place called Hindustan, I was told. So he wasn't looking for India, so he wasn't calling them Indios, people from India. If you look at Spanish, um, Indios, um, if I understand it right, not speaking Spanish, Indios means with God. Mm-hmm. And so he was describing them in their the nature of their life that they lived in paradise. Um, but as was pointed out, he said that these people are Indios, so with God they live in a paradise. But his next line was almost, and they will make good slaves. <laughs> so it was uh, very, very, uh, what would you call it? Um, Capitalistic. It, yeah, very, very demonstrative <laughs> of that European view of the world. Even going back further, I love these kind of little things, um, trying to understand the European conscious and the European mind, that... Um, way back just before Columbus, and there have always been political struggles within the Roman Catholic Church, um, and all these, you know, fighting for political control, the Jesuits and the Franciscans and the Dominicans and all those orders fighting for control of the church. And this article was written in Evolve Magazine Psychology Today, and it said that, so in the late 1400s, there was a struggle between the um, Dominicans and the uh, Franciscans. And the Dominicans their philosophy was dominion. God gave us the earth to have dominion over. We will dominate the earth and all living things and all people. And the Franciscans were more like, we're kind of the stewards of the earth. We're supposed to take care of each other and take care of the earth itself. God gave this gift to us. And so they had this internal struggle. And just before Columbus was, and the whole idea of going out into the world in their ships, um, uh, the Dominicans won. And that philosophy behind their order of we are here to dominate the earth and have dominion over people and the earth itself, it went out with them. Mm-hmm. And so the author is just asking, so would it have been different had the Franciscans gone out and said, this is God's paradise, we're here to take care of it and and learn and, and, and live with other people and learn from them? And I can't see it maybe as that pristine, but I do see it um, just an interesting comment on the complexity of European culture, that they do have all those kind of struggles. And and um, when I used to do a Native American presentation with teachers, just as you can't um, stereotype one Native culture and say it fits everybody, um, it's kind of like you can't do the same with Europeans either. And so this is very old school stuff. It might have changed a lot. I have no idea. But the idea was, you would present the idea that Spain was here for and if you boiled it down to a word, it would be gold for power, gold and witches. Yeah. And so they came for conquest. They called themselves conquistadors, which made life, we understand who you are now. Okay, good. Um, but then also they're here for gold and power. And because of that, they saw native people as workers, as essentially peons in their hierarchical 
you know, pyramid of life, the king and the at the top, the mestizo in the middle, and the peons, the, the essentially the indios on the bottom. But still, they were part of that sixth system, and they were they were um, slaves essentially, and they were treated poorly. Um, but still, the Spanish, this is how they saw the world and how natives fit into it. And then again, we were. This is kind of a, a position that was presented um, that the French were here for. Uh, again, if you boiled it down to a word, trade. And the idea of if you're going to be a trader, the best way you can trade is to be related to the people that you're trading with and therefore will marry into the native tribes, will work out these trade alliance and agreements with them. Um, and so in the Northern Plains area, you got a lot of French names in the mm -hmm. local tribes there. Um, and so that idea, though, was that native people are a part of this world that we here are here and now and they're seen as um potential trade partners mm -hmm. again that that's i know it's a broad brush to paint all this stuff with uh but it's a good discussion point and the english were here for and it's very interesting because the way we've been conditioned to respond to that is they were here for religious freedom because that's the story we were sold the puritans yeah and the pilgrims right mm -hmm. we went for religious freedom um and so but if you look at England being a small island country ruled by the, the, the royalty, the aristocracy, and nobody else gets any land, then they were eventually they were here for land. Yeah, they yeah. wanted their own land. Mm -hmm. And because of that, their view of native people was your obstacles to us getting our land. Mm -hmm. You're living on the land that we want. So you either have to leave or we'll kill you. And no. so that English concept, I think, shaped American history, the same thing. Everyone wants land, everyone's with their own farm, and they're so far, the Indians and the wolves and anything we don't like are our enemy and we'll kill them. Yeah. And so um, that unique form of American racism towards Indians, I think a large part of it comes from that English sensibility that they're on the land that we want. Mm -hmm. It's their land, but we want it, so therefore, they have to learn to either give it up and move quietly or we'll kill them. So to me, that's kind of how we used to explain it because it gave us kind of a platform to begin other discussions with as well. The, uh, I, I was uh, listening to good old YouTube and um, uh, the, the folks that came off of the Mayflower actually settled um, on a... Uh, so Europeans had been coming to the American East Coast for about 100 years um, trading and um, and uh, um, when that group in particular um, who had basically been kicked out of England ended up in um, in the Netherlands didn't want to stay there um, the Americas um, uh, were a potential place where they could settle so they came all the way out here um, but the reason why nobody had settled was because there were so many native peoples along the coastline um, during that hundred year span that there was no place to settle. And, uh, but disease had opened up the opportunity and the folks uh, that came off of the Mayflower literally started their settlement on, um, on the vacated remains of a village that had been wiped out by disease. And, um, and so that's where the, that's, that was a crack in, in the opportunity um, where where um, Europe ended up having a, a chance to take a foothold, mm -hmm. and then that foothold grew. Um, so this was this was kind of a, a large topic um, last time was the the concept of colonization, and um, and you came up a couple of times um, during that conversation, and, and so 
uh, I'm eager to get your perspective on some of these ideas. One of the things that um, that Jerry and I have been working on, and and that um, and that I've talked to Roger about, we've talked about it before too over dinner, is um, is this idea that, um, and again, it's a broad stroke, but but um, but you can break colonization down into a system, and uh, and those systems of colonization include, um, you know, the the you know killing the fathers and the sons, raping the women, um, and um, uh, in order to um, uh, seed, you know, a, a new a new generation of people, um, the the removal of religion and the installation of a new religion, um, the removal of the language, separation from the land, separation from the land, um, and um, and what had come up was um, was the um, was the tribal schools uh, that um, took place. Well, all over, but um, but you have told stories about about some of that, and I was wondering if you would give your perspective on um, on the colonization of of uh, your people and the ideas and the stories that you've heard and been passed down. Well, that's kind of a tall order, but, <laughs> in, but yeah, in ten minutes. So, for those who might not know about the Sioux Uprising, which took place in the 1860s in the Twin Cities area of what is now Minnesota, um, at that point, uh, uh, my ancestors, my tribe had been, um, well, that was the era of the bounty on the heads. The uh, that's the provenance of the term redskins comes from actually the Minnesota, um, just right before the Sioux Uprising era, because at that time, the way to get Indians to stay on their reservation where they were starving literally yeah. was to put a bounty on their heads. So if you've got white people who can legally kill you and who are trying to lure you off the reservation, off your you know where you're not supposed to be. Um, that that was that was the uh, kind of setup for the surprising for people who had been um, separated from lands, restricted to a small space under the control of an agent. Who and I don't know if you remember this phrase, "let them eat grass" along the lines of "let them eat cake," yeah. which led to the Sioux uprising, and then all of the shit that came down after that, and then the forcible um, internment of my people in Fort Snelling, and then our forcible relocation to South Dakota. And so um, uh, all of that is like, you know, it's 150 years ago, but in my family it feels very fresh and alive. And, you know, not so many years ago, <clears throat> one of my uncles may have gotten in a fist fight <laughs> with you know, certain maybe tribal council member arguing over um, whose ancestors had done what 150 years ago, and and so all of this history gets recycled, and and um, it's it hasn't been reconciled. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 It's still very fresh. Uh, it's totally fresh. Yeah. Which, which means that. Um, um, what what your ancestors did is um, is direct, directly relevant 
to it's directly relevant and what they were doing is they led us through an apocalypse yeah so if you want to learn about how to survive a social apocalypse like not unlike what we are experiencing right now you can look to native people who did just that and look at uh, how we've survived and thrived and and the ways that we've um, made that work for us you had family members that, that attended the the um the relocation schools <gasps> oh the boarding schools yeah. absolutely in fact um my gen actually that's not even true <laughs> i was gonna say most of my brothers and sisters wanted to go to boarding school because nowadays it's like there's frequently stuff that um tribal schools don't offer or you might go to a non-tribal school where there are not Indians. Anyway, there's a lot of reasons to choose right now to go to a boarding school. And, and like, um, there are institutions that used to be compulsory boarding schools that are now voluntarily Indian boarding schools where people still choose to go. Well, look at Chamawa Indian School is bigger than ever. So, um, um, but yes, and there's lots of stories there about that I could tell you about people who were taken from our family and the experiences they had in boarding schools. And, you know, um, in 2013, I got a phone call from Harborview Hospital. They said that they had an uncle of mine who was in the hospital there, and he was getting ready to pass on. And as it turned out, this was an uncle who had disappeared more than 20 years ago from our family and who was, um, when, when that batch of kids had been young, they had all been taken into foster care and then they'd all been returned to their parents except for this one uncle. His name was Dave Gruber Renville. He was adopted by a white family. I don't know how or why. And he was separated from his culture and family. And in his 20s, he reconnected with her family. But that time, he was already living on the street and already deeply kind of suffering from feelings of loss and alienation and feeling like he had been separated from something vital. A big piece of himself was missing. And um, long story short, in... Uh, he disappeared. We didn't know where he was. We'd heard rumors he was living in Seattle. Um, Chief Seattle Club, which is a local organization that is a drop-in day center for homeless and low-income natives in Seattle, um, when when I got this phone call from Harbor View telling me that I had an uncle there who was dying, I called my aunt who lives in Portland. She drove up and got to be with her brother when he passed on. And now this is her little brother who, you know, she slept with him when, when they were kids. You know, they were really close and he had been adopted out and then disappeared from their lives and then they'd reconnected. And she, she had always been kind of tortured wondering what had happened to him. And so it was pretty freaking awesome <laughs> for her to get to be with him when he passed on. And it was just this crazy thing. But it also, it's funny because um, that batch of kids from my auntie's generation, the stories they have of their childhood are so rugged. <laughs> but they had one another. They had our culture. They had family. They had the sense of belonging. 
and when you're taken away from that it literally it's like an amputation and to see that that was the one person the one person who got taken away and raised by white people which is supposed to be so much better for you that's the one person in our family who ended up on the street and suffering so badly um, and my um, one of my aunties actually were going to spend Thanksgiving with her tomorrow last year she told me she said when I get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom I still it's like I have to force myself to walk down the hallway. I still have this feeling of pure terror every single time I walk down a dark hallway at night. Really? Yeah. And it's just like thinking about that, that every time my auntie wants to fucking get up in the middle of the night to go pee, she has to overcome dread and tear. It just, and, and thinking about the little kids right now, right fucking now, who are locked up in, te- in these mm-hmm. concentration camps. Anyway, that's what that's none of this stuff is history. None of this stuff is past. The right. Indian Wars are not over. They're not over. It's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. I um uh one of the areas that that this conversation can go is those systems of uh colonization um you know, it's uh um, it's convenient to think of them as passive, right? Like, well, this is just how colonization just kind of ends up. But it seems to me that especially in the 1850s and 1860s and and moving right on through into the 20th century, um, that those those systems were not passive, but in fact, um, consciously done, um, that, that those boarding schools were a means of programming, uh, that those, uh, you know, that, um, that clearly the, uh, uh, you know, from, from the, from the annihilation of the buffalo to the, um, you know, all the way to the relocation onto reservation systems seems uh, like a very deliberate and plan, like not something that just like ended up. It wasn't accidental at all. It was absolutely a deliberate and strategic plan with the intended outcomes happening. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And and there's plenty of documentation and paperwork to back that up. There's this was absolutely a federally planned strategy to, um, as as they literally stated it, kill the Indian and save the man. That was the explicit aim of the boarding school movement. It turns out it was really just kill the Indian, and that was it. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. right. How far back could you imagine that, that those plans were first drawn up? You know, how far back in the seats of, uh, of Western American power were, were these ideas? The manifest destiny, the mm-hmm. idea of manifest destiny makes that inevitable. It does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can't have manifest destiny without the removal of Native nations. And the idea that Native peoples were inferior and the... Um, true purpose of this land and country was yet to be fulfilled by the white people coming. Yeah. And this is, I think, where it goes back uh, to those first pilgrims, right? Like, this is where it goes back to, and this is where um, where I don't necessarily know or think that there were plans in place. I think, you know, if you want to call it lucky, you know, like the, the, those individuals on that boat, the Mayflower, they got lucky. Um, to some degree, because 
Uh, oh, they were incredibly lucky. Incredibly <laughs> lucky. Like, because over 100 years, you know, no settlement could be created because the native population certainly just simply wouldn't tolerate it. Um, but trade was occurring. And then disease uh, uh, takes hold, uh, you know, wipes out a considerable amount of the population. Disease is what removed the native people from America and gave the white settlers the impression that their vast technological and intellectual superiority is what had emptied the land. Well said. Yeah, it wasn't the rifle or the no, it wasn't. Or, you know, or the or the ability to um, form groups of people into regiments um, or cavalry. Or I think it's really important for non-native people to understand that, like you just said, that by the time settlers even got in most places, nine out of ten native people had already died yeah. from disease, and the societies had already been decimated and collapsed in a way that made it very ripe for settlers moving in and just taking. Yeah, and we, we don't see that represented, right? No, we don't. You know, I mean, let's take the, the wonderful film, um, Dances with Wolves, and, uh, you know... Oh, uh, a favorite of mine. <laughs> favorite of yours, favorite. Right? I mean, you know, here's this film where the native groups are represented as... as um, there's a there's a scene where um, where they're sitting around in the tent and and um, and the uh, the elder pulls out a, a, a something covered in a in a blanket and he opens it up and it's a Spanish helmet and he says they've been coming here for you know 300 years but what they don't talk about in that is yeah they've been coming here for 300 years and and our way of life has changed so dramatically over that 300 years without them waging war directly against us uh you know that that disease was the first was the first piece and then the killing of the you know the deliberate um, and systematic massacre of the buffalo herds um, that's mind-boggling it's uh, it just so takes me back to that word apocalypse it was an apocalypse obviously for the buffalo nation <laughs> but for all of their relatives too and it is it's still stunning to think about it and that's the other course piece about buffalo bill that's how he got his name yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, you know and literally pulling a wagon up um and uh with maybe a crew of three um sitting in front of a herd of buffalo that could number in the tens of thousands and starting on one day and uh and and literally putting down hundreds of animals in a day waking up the next day putting down hundreds of animals the next day the next day the next day until they had skinned those animals and left the meat to rot and the wagon that they had taken was so full that they couldn't possibly slaughter anymore and so they would ride off and there were hundreds of crews out there doing this mm -hmm. and in the matter of of less than two years Mm -hmm. and the, the buffalo pop herds were wiped out mm -hmm. systematically. Mm -hmm. Were they just taking the skins of the buffalo? Just taking buffalo? the skins. Actually, most of them were not even taken for their skins. Most of them just laid and rotted as whole carcasses. That's incredible. It was utterly grotesque. Just an utterly grotesque thing that happened. And it's funny because I'm glad you brought that up. It doesn't get as much attention as the slaughter of humans. Mm. But... 
It's just as hideous. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. What was the reason? Why were they- the, oh, it was an explicit strategy to subdue the Sioux. There was no other way to subdue the Sioux except to kill our buffalo. And the buffalo couldn't be, uh, what's that called? They couldn't uh, be they domesticated, decay, domesticated or bred. So we don't need them, but we need our cattle. So let's mm-hmm. kill all the buffalo and open up the land mm-hmm. to our cattle. Uh, so there was a lot of, like, I'm, I'm working on a, a, a outline for a series of wolf graphic novel. I won't tell you the name because it's too awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but part of it, a lot of a lot of things came into the creation of it. And one is uh, a book called Coyote America, which is uh, the hate America has for coyotes, very much similar to the wolf, very much similar to the natives, mm-hmm. uh, that hate for them to the point where you'll do anything to kill them. And um, there's a chapter uh, where he goes over uh, the amount of poison that was put out in the early 1900s to control coyotes and wolves. Um, tons, hundreds of tons, thousands of tons of poison were spread everywhere. And it was pointed out to the, I think it was the land management or forestry people, you're going to kill a lot more animals than, than coyotes and wolves with this poison because you're just, it's just, and they said we well essentially they said we don't care as long as we kill those coyotes and those wolves we'll 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 take that as collateral damage and we kill every other thing that lives out there too um, anything that was wild and not domesticated they were more than happy to kill and so uh, the author in a very I thought very poetic uh, way he called that chapter where they put out thousands of tons of uh, uh, poison every year killing anything they could kill that was wild he called that chapter the war on life mm. which that's about the only way you can describe mm. it so for me you have to ask at least I do what is it about one culture that's willing to kill everything mm-hmm. and um, that to me is the uh, core of the sickness of America and the Western culture is that it doesn't examine that idea that we will kill anything to get what we want gold oil, um, land for cattle, whatever it is, we'll kill anything and everything, and we'll kill them all. So what is it about one culture that is willing to do that, that believe it, has to develop the power to do that? Um, until that is really addressed, I think America is going to continue on this path of destroying itself. Well, I think that's, that is the culture, right? The culture is a simulator die. Mm-hmm. And um, and I mean that's that's what we see today. You know, the, it is a simulator die. That's what we're seeing with, um, I, you know, I think that's what we're seeing with rampant um, prescription drug use. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, and I'm not necessarily talking about opioids, um, antidepressants. You know, I think I think that that the human beings within this culture are struggling so much in order to remain and participate in this culture that um that we have to dope them oh i think if you're not struggling right now with mental health issues there's something wrong with you (laughs) (laughs) well you're you're on drugs (laughs) Uh, and everything's happy so um let's talk about uh john legazamo's legazamas leguzamo Oh, we said it all differently. That was really good. <laughs> we said it all differently. It is Leguizamo. Is it Leguizamo? Yes, it is. Leguizamo. Okay. I would like to hear him say it. I remember, well, he should say his own name. Yeah. Right. It's probably all <laughs> Leguizamo. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, history, uh, what, what was it? It was history. Latin. Latin, Latin history, history for morons. morons. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's us. What? That's Latin most history. of us. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. yeah. So one of the things he said in there, he said a lot of great stuff in there, but one of the things he said in there that I thought was amazing was 
the idea. Um, so there's all kinds of numbers that are thrown around, right? You know, like I, I love the progressive number that gets thrown around of, whoa, you know, um, there were actually 10 million up to upwards of 10 million Native American peoples in the in the United States. OK, that's all great. He threw out a number. And granted, he's talking about Latin America and and uh, um, and parts of South America included in parts of North America. He threw out a number of 26 million. Oh, I've heard higher numbers than that. I would imagine. There are native scholars who have who who have very um and and I'm not even a math person but who have compelling mathematical models to talk about what the numbers of people living on this continent might have been so anyway um that whole idea that we were talking about earlier about how the continent had been decimated by disease before settlers even moved in mm -hmm. um it's so funny cuz one of the things that I have learned recently about right here is that the Coast Salish people used to have Salish wool dogs that lived on little isolated islands and fed like the best salmon and their beautiful glossy coats were highly prized for wool. And just this past year, the Burke Museum here um, has a new exhibit and has a beautiful old Salish wool dog blanket on display. So that's the tradition of the Salish wool. Yeah. It's not sheep's wool, obviously. No, it's dog. But, but... Mountain goat. Presumably what happened was that the dogs got killed by diseases just like the humans did. And then what I just learned this summer, and it's so funny because learning it is like, you know, so once again, you're learning like, oh, all the buffalo raw killed. It's like a fucking punch to the gut. And, and so I learned that Dakota people, of course, we had Dakota dogs. We had our Dakota pack dogs. And all through the Dakotas, you can, in fact, the state is finally for the first time spending a little time and resources turning them into trails and recovering them. They're the old Twava trails where the dogs pulling the poles were pack animals and they were, our, they were those were our highways mm -hmm. and they're still there. But all of our dogs died from settler diseases that the settler dogs brought and just like us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't know. That's a, ta that's a tangent, but it's not a tangent. <laughs> there are no tangents. That's the wonderful thing about podcasts. <laughs> Never a tangent. <clears throat> so let's go back to uh, to John's special. Um, what'd you think? I thought it was cool. It was a nice a, a way of teaching history, kind of through comedy. Uh, and then he also did a lot of uh, number dates, those kind of things, which is, I thought, going to have a different impact than if you just read in a book or had a teacher lecturing to you. Um, and he also wove his own personal story and struggled with his son. It was, I was trying to explain it to someone. I said, so he's struggling with his son who struggling at his school with his uh, Latino identity. Um, and every time his son, or he believes he's able to help his son kind of get over some obstacle, something else knocks him down again which um, is not that too far-fetched a way to put it, that uh, every, oh, 
day, every week, every year, there's some kind of issue that you have to, I mean, the minutia, sometimes it sounds like people, like we focus, especially as urbans, we focus on so many small little issues because they're common, they're right in front of us. They're affronts that are right in front of us. And like, you know, the idea that Fern today just uh, um, heard that a, a non-native woman gave a presentation, a keynote presentation, that a big state arts organization on Native Americans, and this person has been identified before as inappropriately doing these things. I mean, it showed up again today of all days. I mean, it, it, and again, it's almost Happy like, well, Thanksgiving. Do you, yeah. Do you, do you just, Happy Native American do you Heritage just ignore Month. it? Do you ignore it and just, oh, well, nothing you can do about it. Oh, well, we've got more important battles to fight. Or do you look at every struggle, no matter how small, um, necessary? Mm -hmm. So for me, I, I'm trying to frame an issue, uh, what the modern art world is doing traditional Native art, um, overlaying its values, its expectations of art onto our traditional art, and how we respond to that, I think, is what I'm willing to look at and and, and talk about and struggle with um, but there are so so many other issues that um, um, it seems like it's never ending it never ends uh, so for me then being aware that there are all these issues that we're prioritizing I mean which is the most important one to fight um, sometimes people will point to things like what happened at Standing Rock where you're fighting a corporation because a lot of Native people believe we're not we're any we're leaving the the age of the war against the U.S. government and entering the wars against U.S. corporations, which is a whole different um, battle, a whole different war. So, do you look at a different model for resistance, a different model, and and again, how do we develop that, and how do we how do we apply it, and how do we um, carry it out? To me, I think there's just a lot to figure out yet. Um, it was almost like we never got quite the handle on how to handle the government, but maybe we did. But now it shifted, and now it's, uh, it's there's probably always been elements of it in American history of how money controls the government, but now we have no control over corporations. Mm -hmm. So I really think that we're entering the age of corporate wars, a different kind of war, and what's that war going to look like for Native people? I think a lot of people are recognizing that it is the age of the corporation, and the corporation is unaccountable, uncontrollable, um, uh, oftentimes destructive um, entity that has more and more power. Um, so I think when, when we talk about some of these things to other, to some folks it might sound, well, they're kind of getting nitpicky about this stuff, but where do you draw that line? Where do you say, well, this is really, really important, this is kind of important, this is not important? Um, I don't know, but it does seem like something every day. Mm -hmm. Something's happening every day you've got to be aware of, listen to. Um, I just asked my friend, uh, uh, we went to graduate school, Leora, I asked her what she thought of the whole Elizabeth Warren thing, uh, where Elizabeth Warren um, uh, said that she was told in her family history she has Native heritage. Um, our wonderful president jumped on that, started calling her Pocahontas, is kind of a real racial slur um, to attack her. Um, by ridiculing she, her claim of having any Native heritage. Then she went and got um, a DNA test done, and that didn't stop the uh, attacks. In fact, it uh, uh, encouraged more attacks. And some Native people believe that she did 
a thing that really didn't help. By, in my way, I put it is so science is proven I'm part native um, versus <laughs> my people and my culture proven I'm, I'm native. 23 and me is the arbiter of my native identity. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, every every day it's almost like something new is coming up. I mean, to the native people, the destruction of the salmon, that to the plains people was apocalyptic. The buffalo destruction, um, we see it happening to the salmon on a day-to-day basis here. And if you look at our mythology, the salmon were the first food, the first beings created to um, help humans live in the world. So our oldest beliefs have to do with the salmon. We see the world is built around the salmon, and every day you see some effort to um, diminish the salmon, starting with the dams and the pollution and and overfishing and destruction of habitat. And the dams. And the dams. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. I said that. It's not the overfishing. (laughs) It's the fucking dams. All right. It's the dams. (laughs) No more wine for her, okay? <laughs> She's moved on to the tea. <laughs> What's in that tea? Um, tea. So yeah, the dams. I mean, that that's a critical aspect of it. And I'm working. I work. I I, I probably shouldn't say too much about these kind of things. Working on a, process, a project between native tribes and farming communities. Farming communities want to control the rivers because they don't want them flooding on their farmland. The native people want the rivers to be rivers because this is just how nature intended and the salmon need all the, the, the life form of a river. And it's like two huge mythologies colliding. One, we live within the, the rules of nature, the boundaries of nature, other, we control nature. So for me then, I don't know how to answer that one. How do you, how do you find a common ground um, when you have two such um, just almost like diametrically opposed philosophies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, because of the power structure of this country, who has the power to inflict their belief on the other? Not that Native people would inflict uh, inflict, um, their belief on other people, but to maintain uh, what they believe philosophically is the idea we live within the the boundaries of nature, the rules of nature, and we don't violate those, which another culture, they always believe they can improve nature. Mm-hmm. So again, every day it's some little thing that you just kind of got to sit down and say, now what the hell am I supposed to do or believe? Uh, and and so every now and then there's a flashpoint and you just can't take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> how do you and how do you hold that space? You know, in between the um, those two conflicting theories. You know, I mean, it right now it's like we see it so much, especially. Especially, you know, for individuals as well, too. You know, I mean, it's like we're talking about Native Americans and, you know, just Native people and, you know, the whole 23andMe and all of these other things. It's like, okay, how do we claim our indigeneity, especially if, if there's individuals like myself that is mixed, right? So it's like Hawaiian, Chinese, Filipino, Spanish, and Portuguese. I mean, it's like the Spaniards and the Portuguese were... They were the colonizers, and I, I have that <laughs> in my veins. <laughs> yeah, and we all do. So uh, the sense, last census results show clearly that Native American pe- people who identify as Native American 
um, are ethnically the most diverse people in America. We marry outside of our ethnicity more than any other American demographic. When you're talking about a Native family, you are talking about a Native African American, Arab American, Japanese American, Latino American <laughs> family. There, uh, you know, there are Indian doesn't the the Native people in America have have intermarried extensively <laughs> and we have incorporated all the bloods of the world into our native body of right. of community right. so it's when when people say oh you're being racist or whatever it's like no native families are all different colors <laughs> we're all different colors that is so true and and if you looked at my family you would see we're all different colors and we have absorbed all the nations of man and and we're not ta- it's not talking about what what the mix is or what the proportions are cuz that's this whole like measuring thing mm-hmm. where so to be legally considered Native American in this United States of America, both Roger and myself legally cannot be Native American in the eyes of the government unless we have our little pedigree card. And I have that, and I'm, you have one too. It's a little pedigree card that shows our blood quantum so that we, like, shows that we meet the criteria for being enrolled in our tribes. He's going to bring it out, Roger. Let's see it. We're going to look at Roger's part right now. Oh my gosh, that thing's legit. (laughs) Wow, it is. It really, it's like, does it have like your fingerprints on this and stuff like that? Or what's your blood quantum? Where's the blood quantum on here? It doesn't have it. Oh, it doesn't? Ours doesn't do it. Oh, Oh. ours has blood quantum. uh Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's even holographed. That's crazy. Wow. And so Roger's our name is Brian. So our federal government literally becomes the arbiter of our identity. And so like all things in America, the white settler criteria gets imposed whether it fits or not. So white people get to determine who is native instead of native people. White people get to determine what is offensive to natives instead of native people. White people get to tell the history of natives instead of native people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which kind of makes me think of our where we started out earlier before all this started, which was around <laughs> pretendianism and pretendians. What is a pretendian? And it's so funny because I in my I'm older now, I'm a 50-something lady, and I, in my lifetime, there I can think of six right off the top of my head. People I've been, maybe not close to, but like, friend, you know, friends with and who were part of my community who that I learned years into the relationships that they weren't actually Native, and they had these constructed identities. And every single time it fucks with your sense of trust and your sense of like it's such a weird gaslighting thing to do to native people <laughs> and there are certain fields in american um society that are rampant with pretendians and the acting world is one of them and there are 
several people I know who are absolutely not native, who present as native and are, you know, have out their roles and get paid and <laughs> and and um, uh, there's. Uh, a lady that this is the whole thing started earlier some friends sent me on facebook a little blurb showing that at washington state's last cultural congress which is like the statewide annual conference for learning and convening that like the keynote presenter on indigenous placemaking was in fact a woman who's not native and who has been widely called out in the native community as not native. She says that she's black feet. She has also claimed at times to be black foot or Suquamish, but in either case, she's neither. But she is a white lady who showed up at ceremony in Browning and hung around and no one knew who had invited her and then later on in Seattle she spun her appearance at Ceremony and Browning as somehow being adopted and then saying that she um, had been adopted. Now there are folks in Browning who say that's absolutely not true and I have just learned that there's some Blackfeet families here in Seattle who have who are currently petitioning the Blackfeet Tribal Council to get um, a cease and desist letter out to this woman. Because this woman is getting, she's getting funding from revenue streams that are publicly funded. These are tax dollars that are meant specifically for Native people. So both Roger and myself in our roles here in the city have been artists up ambassadors for the you know whole Washington State Arts Alliance, which is the organization that just hired this pretendian <laughs> to be the speaker on indigenous placemaking. Um, this was in when was it, twenty fourteen or we we were part of these community listening sessions that were held with native artists and then these focus these more um, intimate focus groups and pretendianism and the kind of havoc that that wreaks was a consistent topic brought up by you know uh, native artists responding it tends to delegitimize the whole process in the eyes of native artists because we see white people once again insisting on their right to determine who is native or not. So when they insist on funding or giving work to a white woman who says she's Blackfeet, but they're not checking in with the local native Blackfeet community who would tell them exactly who this lady is and who a actual Blackfeet community member might be. And there are many. There are so many cool Blackfeet people in this community who are eminently qualified to be that kind of um, community uh, liaison. And um, so... I, in 2014, in 2014 the um, Mercado had been 
performed um, the Mikado. I can't remember which theater company in town had done it, but it had been done and there was a lot of backlash against it. And so the Seattle Repertory Theater hosted a um, uh, some sort of convening that had to do with race and theater and appropriation. And it was kind of about how non-theaters of color, or I don't even know, <laughs> how do you pronounce that? But <laughs> what's the proper face? But anyway, white theater companies could work in a culturally competent way with um, theaters of color. And so I was asked to be on stage as one of the panelists and one of the things that was going to happen was various theater artists of color were going to get up and speak to the audience who were all there to learn. And I think that the Seattle Rep and the organizers were absolutely unprepared for how jam-packed the theater was. People really were there to learn, which was very cool, which was why it was so upsetting. So I got there late because I literally had just wrapped up this two-week theater camp where 50 native teenagers come and do two weeks of theater camp and it's just as exhausting as you can imagine and and I um, got there a little late and got you know ushered out onto stage and sat down in line with the other folks and um, it was at the point where they were having um, the theater artists of color stand up and speak to, you know, the audience about how uh, to properly engage and answer questions. And so, um, who should stand up? But this same white lady in question, and as usual, she's like dripping with turquoise. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but she invites it by putting herself in this position. And so this is a person who literally has never done Native theater. So why she was chosen was beyond me. But in any case, she stood up and she, you know, gave some sort of, I don't know, like it, her advice to the people in the audience was kind of woo-woo-ish and the main thing I remember was something around the line of native people you know you we, we don't use our heads we we use our hearts you know and I just remember being like what the what what does that mean <laughs> and what practical use is that for this audience and and so it was like not substantial it was not meaningful and it was just like some sort of goofy soundbite and anyway so they actually then they moved on to the next question and because i had slipped in a little late i didn't get it didn't come to me and they asked a different question and the answering came back down the line to me and I, at that point, was just like kind of having an out-of-body experience. <laughs> I could feel like my hands and feet starting to tingle. Partly it was because I was just completely exhausted from these two weeks of camp. I was just like utterly wrung out. And I just didn't have any fucks to give about anything. <laughs> and and I just was like, I am like 50-something, and I cannot tell you how many times as a Native person... I've had to stand and listen 
and be quiet and respectful and just listen to some white person going on about our community and about native shit and i just like i don't have anything more you know i didn't have like i just i get just i had to bring attention to it and just say that i can't be silent when it happens because it just makes me feel awful how, how was that received oh it was so funny because i'm i'm uh, like i said i'm an old lady and as i left the stage this young man leaned over and he goes you dropped the mic man and i was like no i didn't <laughs> nobody was talking about it's <laughs> like no i didn't i held on to it the whole time <laughs> but um um for me actually it was very interesting because it, it i think that um <clears throat> Excuse me, but it was in fact a very scripted and kind of safely planned event. Mm -hmm. And that got things off script. And once things got off script, it did get a little rowdy, but things got more truthful then. Yeah. And yeah. and personally I felt better. I just like I and it was kind of, you it's kind of embarrassing footage. I I haven't even I haven't watched it, but it's somewhere online. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just like so, I was so furious and so hurt so hurt that I could barely talk I could barely talk because I really am so fucking tired of listening to white people whitesplain and tell how it is for Indian folks that's just gotta stop it's just time for that to end I think, yeah, I think one thing that became evident to me is that that lady is a part of the problem, and she might have a lot of issues, but still, it's the agencies that put her up there, mm -hmm. the ones who say, oh, you go ahead and you speak here and you speak there, we, we want to hear your voice, without vetting her at all. Um, so what is it about them that and but but in the past I know Fern and other people have pointed out this lady doesn't represent us um, But they seem to disregard that and go with well, but she's here wearing her Pendleton coat and her turquoise and her braids and so therefore she looks legit. Yeah, <laughs> why would you? So part of it's the agencies themselves the um, and part the of it's like that. she's <clears throat> a very palatable Indian who says all the nice things that make them feel good mm. and she's not going to challenge them this right. isn't a lady who's going to challenge right. them on their that's shit why well, that's, why yeah. yeah. well, Ferns, that's why she's there that's why she's there well Ferns they you know Native Americans process things through their heart <laughs> <laughs> Not, not Fuck you, white man. <laughs> I think the, you said it. <laughs> one thing that came out during that whole thing, besides what was happening there, which was, I think, something that might have been dramatic to us, but to other folks, it was just a subtle, kind of a subtlety. I mean, what are you talking about? Um, but they asked the man who produced the play, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he got the mic. He was in the audience. And he said, well, we've done this all around the country, and we've never had a problem before. Like, and oh, my Japanese friend <laughs> doesn't have any problem with it. It was yeah. like a script for the classic, like, defensive white yeah, oh, like fragile. People, like when people say, "I have a black friend." Exactly. Uh -huh. They never complain. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So he yeah. was okay. He's the poster child for all that. Please <laughs> take a picture and put that quote right, right above him. Uh, and so it's interesting because um, uh, the Mikado is 
just like Peter Pan. I mean, we had to make sure Peter Pan. Peter Pan. Peter Pan. Oh my God. Have, what's that island called? The island of the Indians or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. And so you know, we want to do Peter Pan at the Never school. Never Neverland. Yeah. And a native parent pointed out that that whole segment where the Indians are pretending to be Indians dancing around a teepee with fire right. and. and right. Woo woo wooing and and that can't go with my kids being in this. I can't go with any kids being in this school. And so the family was attacked uh, in various ways, not physically, but they were attacked. You know, probably on faith, whatever. You know, these Indians spoiled our our Peter Pan opportunity here. I have heard way too many first person accounts from parents and kids who've been turned off on participating in public school theater programs because of the absolute over-reliance on Peter Pan and the complete unwillingness to address how problematic a play it is. Mm. Um, And it's considered like a sacred cow, a canon of the youth theater experience and sorry but that's bullshit i think it's actually so ripe for a redo and like it and it could be a great play and that's the thing is it really wouldn't even take that much Mm -hmm. but um the kinds of things that i've heard from kids are things like oh i you know i actually i have a lot ton of um uh voice memos that I've made on my iPhone of, of these kinds of things. But kids have, have, a lot of kids note how, why are we one of the make-believe creatures? <laughs> and why, you know, so that is like, there's something very um, telling about that, I Absolutely. think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A few years ago, we had a struggle in Seattle schools with um, their honors liter- literature program. Um in that they were using a book called Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And one of the native students in the class noted that they kept referring to the savages who live in their villages out at the edge of civilization and how they do all these strange ceremonies and they do all these strange things that savages do. It didn't name a tribe and it didn't say Indians, but everybody knew who they were talking about. Um, And so she complained about it and we supported her and she went to the school itself and we had meetings with the faculty and the administration and by and large they were saying but this is just kind of how it is this is a book we have and they really didn't it seemed want to examine the deeper uh colonizer racism that was you know kind of coursing through the book uh one of the teachers tried to point out that um Huxley's portrayal of these savages was meant to be ironic because the so-called civilized people were all drugged up on, I think it was called Soma. Mm-hmm. It's controlling drug for the culture, and the natives were not. And so they, he said, so do you understand that the natives were really the real humans they in this book? Humans, and, yeah. yeah, but you still call them savages, and they did all these strange things out in their little villages way out in the edge of civilization. So it was interesting because they would not drop the book People accused us of being book burners. I mean, you don't have to burn the book. Just find other books that try kind of do the same thing without that or, racist overtone. Or even, like, keep the book and add, like, some critical reading right. a, and to, to look at the text critically because I actually think that's a wonderful learning experience. I think that um, my kids' experience in Seattle Public Schools is – these heavy texts would be assigned and there was really no debrief on them that 
it was very yeah. superficial. So there was no processing of something that's, like that's that. That's what was one of the teachers said. He said we used to talk yeah. about these things, yeah. but now in the crush of time and yeah. the amount of content, we just kind of gloss over it and go through it, and we don't have these discussions. It's like, well, duh. Fill out have the online discussions. questionnaire. Yeah, <laughs> you know, make yeah. sure you have time for those kind of discussions where you bring up another culture that the students don't understand, and you're making it. You know, there are all kinds of ways to have discussions about this. Um, so they didn't. So in the school system itself, in the plays and all that, there's all these things that kind of like are in question because they're in the canon of literature and theater and art, whatever, and it just it just gets defended. Yeah. Um, and so for Native people, that's again, is that just a nitpicky thing or is that really at the core of the struggle we're in is uh, that control of our own image and our own story? Well, and and uh, that particular book, I mean, it 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 basically calls the reader to make that kind of examination. I mean, it's a book, it's a fictional de- depiction of of how um, of how society gives over control to a big brother voluntarily, and um, you know, I mean, it's self colonization, and and so um, you know, it, it deserves that kind of deep. Um, uh, analysis and conversation. We're so deep. <laughs> totally, <right? laughs> totally. Damn. <laughs> you, you say something. Oh. Anything. Uh, just anywhere. Just. <laughs> Stream of consciousness. No, I was. I actually was thinking about you know the uh, pretendians. And, um, well, there's, there was a movie just came out a couple years ago about Hawaiian ancestors or something, and and there was a big controversy because it's supposed to be about Hawaiian natives and selling some land on an island, and it's very modern. But most of the actors playing the Hawaiian family were oh, not. Oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Emma Stone one was it Emma Stone one? Somebody that she was like that. Um, yeah, she was like Hawaiian and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, they're supposed to claim Hawaiian heritage mm. and right, Hawaiian. Right, 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 right. Say, so, well, wait a minute. That, why are you white actors getting exactly. to do oh my all gosh. this? Exactly. Do you know who Moses Goods is? He's a native Hawaiian actor who lives in Hawaii and is really cool and I should hook you guys up so you can talk about this that would be yeah R-E-R that, um, would, that would be awesome because mm-hmm. you on the so you have the pretendians mm-hmm. and then you also have individuals who struggle with the uh, um, imposter syndrome as mm-hmm. well too mm-hmm. where the imposter syndrome is individuals like myself who can you know, through colonization and also moving away and being so far away from my island and my culture, being told things that the, my dialect is, doesn't sound like I could hold a degree, that the way I speak sounds ignorant. And so I learned to mask all of those things and I learned to assimilate to my own, you know, for my own survival. Mm-hmm. But within all of that, I forget who I who I really am. And I walk around talking, acting, assimilating into this white culture, feeling like a fucking imposter, but not knowing how to even be myself anymore until we ever, we're able to call it out or someone will gracefully come up and say, um, who the hell are you? <laughs> 
I hear your voice, but I don't really hear your voice. And so I think this past few years, I've been going through my own decolonization, which has been really difficult to do because, you know, I'm told that I'm in some in some circles, I'm not Hawaiian enough. In some other circles, I'm too Hawaiian. Some other circles, it's like you don't even speak Filipino. And in, in, in other circles, it's like you look Filipino, but how come you don't do this? You know, what I mean, I'm always struggling with all of these things. And I think I finally come to the realize that the realization that fuck it, I'm gonna show up however I wanna show up. And I claim my indigeneity by knowing where I came from, the land in which my mother shed her blood to bring me onto this earth. You know, the practices and the cultures, the way that my father taught me how to how to fish and how he would share stories with us. And all the stories was a lesson. You know, and I didn't really think about all of that stuff until until Roger started to tell me about stories. And he's like, you know, the, the, the stories and there's lessons in the stories. I'm like, oh my gosh, you sound like my dad. <laughs> you know, because I never thought of that. I never thought of it that way. And so, you know, I think, I think now it just pisses me off when there's people that can come across acting or trying to take somebody's culture and they don't even understand the struggles that we go through mm-hmm. as indigenous people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. walking and navigating this mm-hmm. freaking white world and mm-hmm. somebody's going to come up and say this is who i am mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is like it's like bring me the gloves you know <laughs> i mean that is really rubbing salt in the wound yes it is it is i mean it's like you you want to you want to go ahead and take my culture Take it, but you're gonna take everything else that came with it as well too. And if you take the diabetes, it, bitch. Yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. On <laughs> the bad fucking credit rating. <laughs> take the fact that I can fucking handle alcohol. <laughs> You know what you know I mean it's I think it's like they don't they don't under they don't understand that. They don't understand all of that struggles and if they can't if they can't hold that then they have no right at all to even try to claim it. If they can't if they can't take all of the struggles but you have a whole other dynamic too and that's not just pretendians it's, na- it's white folks essentially white folks who just appropriate native culture mm-hmm. and they almost challenge you to do something about it. Like here on the Northwest Coast, we have many, many white artists who do Northwest Coast art, and they sell it as Northwest Coast art, but they're not Northwest Coast native. And other natives from other places, like the Southwest, there was a presentation made on the um, Indian Arts and Crafts Law, which uh, is meant to not really protect the native art and culture, but to protect the buyer, that the buyer knows this is native art they're really buying. And uh, it was pointed out, so this guy from the Southwest came, and he was very articulate in showing the knockoff jewelry versus their real jewelry and all this and the steps they take to protect and the court cases that have come out of all this to protect the, the, the native um, uh, rights as artists and cultural artists. And then someone, I think it was me, said, well, what about if you have 
non-native artists who do native art and people will buy it because mm -hmm. they want this person's art. And there are several that are really well known. They make a much better living than I ever will being an artist. They're not even native, but they're doing native art. And so that's a whole nother dynamic is, is the appropriation aspect yep. um, where white people don't claim to be native. They just claim their right as white people to appropriate from another culture, copy their art and sell it and make a lot of money doing it. And oftentimes, well, I was taught by this native teacher and they probably were. I was adopted by this native village over here and they might have been. But as you're saying, all of that does not make them native. It makes them associated to us and maybe affiliated and connected with us, but it doesn't make them native. So the guy, when we told him this, that there's a lot of white artists who are doing our art and there's a lot of collectors that would walk over our bodies to get to that, you know, mm -hmm. that guy's artwork and uh, buy it because they don't care if it's native or not. And this guy, his eyes got big. He says, you guys let that happen here? <laughs> we're like, well, you know, what do we do? And so um, it's a very uh, uh, divisive issue here, just in our northwest coast Indian art. I'm not sure how it affects other native communities and regions, but um, a lot of the younger native artists said, my teacher was so-and-so, this white guy. My teacher was so-and-so, this other white guy. And so I owe a debt <laughs> to that white person. And I told one guy, because he said it way too many times, I said, I'm glad I didn't have a white teacher because I don't owe them nothing. But if right. you feel you're going to do this because you owe them something, you better re-examine your relationship with that person because you don't owe them anything. Um, and so that's a whole other thing. It's just essentially just pure and clean capitalist appropriation. Mm. Yeah. We will take from another culture what we want because we know we can make money doing that. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's rampant as well. So again, there's a whole nother, do, do I kind of put that one to the side and focus on pretendians? Right. Do I focus on the Indians, the white guys that don't even say they're Indian, they just appropriate and make money off of us? Do we, or everything in between? I mean, right. I don't know. So right. um, that's when people start saying you're getting nitpicky or you're uh, too sensitive or whatever that's it when, is. That's when we start to feel really just grumpy all the right. time. Right, we're angry, <laughs> we're pissed off, you know, it's like that's uh -huh. what it is. I don't know. We should ask the white guy. What struggles does white people have? White guy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for your... I get the mic again. <laughs> white people love having the mic. Uh, well, honestly, I think I think the biggest struggle that, that, um, that faces um, uh, people of European descent is um, understanding their own indigeneity. I, and I mean that. I think that. Uh, I think that. You know, I, I come from a. I come from a people who. Well, I come from two groups of people. Um, you know, my 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 Gallic um, roots come from a group of people who were conquered by um, by Caesar. Um, uh, you know, starting in the. Um, you know, in the in the first century BC, going all the way into. Um, you know, into the first century AD, and um, and those people were conquered. Those people were, their indigeneity was wiped out. Um, uh, you know, a third of them were were murdered over the course of a five year campaign. A third of them were dragged off into slavery, and the third that left adopted Roman culture within a generation. And then I come from another group of people who are uh, Norse, who are Nordic, who essentially, um, as far as I can tell, 
were an indigenous people who became colonizers. Uh, and uh, Once they were Christianized. Know, um, it was before they were Christianized. Uh-huh. You know, they, they were raiding into Christian. In fact, they, the very first um, uh, um, raid that they did into northern England was, uh, was a monastery. Uh-huh. And they killed all the monks but one. Um, they took all the gold. And that was their, that was their very first raid. Um, and um, and that monk that they that they that they uh, that they took ended up um, p- playing a part in bringing Christianity to uh, to those people. They should have killed them. They should have killed them. <laughs> <laughs> they done fucked up. <laughs> you know, but uh, uh, you know, so and that's a group of people who who, um, and I think this is an important distinction. That is a group of people who were never colonized. However, self-colonized, right? Christianity is a form of colonization. Well, these days, the Norwegians do feel colonized by Sweden. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think there's still some resentment there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and I and uh, and so I think so. We've got you know we've got basically we've got two thousand years um, of uh, of. Uh, indigenous European peoples um, who who have lived under colonization, who have um, um, you know, and and then have reached out and and colonized a, a continent of their own, two continents of their own, and um, and they are you know these people of European descent are so far removed from their indigenous indigenous roots that um, that they're desperate. There, there's a silent desperation, and uh, and I and that goes back to what we were talking mm-hmm. about as far as you know um, Native Americans in Europe and well you know why would they put the the you know a, a replica of the you know the Wild West show in Disney Europe you know because there's a want for it there's a market for it and um, and um, and I, so I think the reason why that's such an important thing the reason why that's such an important um, peace to quote unquote white people is um, without knowing that indigenous root, we will continue to um, to be a snake that consumes its own tail. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think the biggest struggle is. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I agree. There's always a, a interesting when you do storytelling, you get a lot of people, non-native people, coming up and saying, "I really love listening to native stories. I love them." And you hear it so much, you begin to see a pattern. You begin to understand, wonder what that pattern is. And um, this author, this mythologist, wrote that he noticed that too. He's in non-native mythology, but I noticed that people always gravitate to the native stories, Native American stories. And he said he believed it was because um, deep within them there's a feeling, a knowing, that their ancestors told the, the same stories about connecting with nature and animals and humans and the stars and the sky. All those connecting stories that their culture would tell, somewhere deep inside them, they're still resonating. And when they hear the native stories, that caused that res- resonance to become even stronger. And that was one of the best ways I heard of someone trying to explain that phenomenon, that they're... they're, they're responding to the native stories somewhere deep inside saying i know that story i know that story so that native people are keeping these things alive it's almost like you're doing it for the rest of humanity especially those people in humanity who call themselves civilized Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly 
like all the academics who believe that traditional stories are fairy tales. It's kind of like a trivialized sort of, it's like for kids or entertainment. It's, it's not serious. Yeah. It's not real stories. Right. Well, it's even, not true. Even, even to diminish their own stories by calling them fairy tales yeah. or folk tales, to diminish them by saying these are not the powerful teachings of your ancestors by saying, mm-hmm. so they done it to themselves first before exactly. they got a hold of ours. They um, uh, diminish those stories to the point where they're only for children. They're, they could never happen. They're not true. Therefore, they have no meaning to us. Whatever it is, their way of... Uh, uh, justifying their uh, way of being now as civilized people um, calls for the diminishment of the native people and the stories they tell, mm-hmm. including their own. Um, a friend of mine said that in Europe and in a lot of, uh, um, in, in Europe and here in America as well, um, women who had certain powers to understand plants, plant food, plant medicine, they had this knowledge that was accumulated over their life and they had this ability to use plants and the spirits of the plants to heal. Um, and they were called witches. Mm-hmm. And any woman who was found guilty of having this knowledge was drug out in front of the village and burned alive in front of everyone. And so after she was burned, every the, the colonizers turned around and said, you have any questions? You know, this is this ends now because the the reign of man, men have come, and the power of women must diminish, which go away. So that self destructive nature, you said, is snaking in his own tail. I mean, to me, that's part of that story. So, um, how do you separate that conquest of so much of the world from ours? I think. I look for the similarities and I look for cultures that have somehow been able to resist. But those are hard to find. They really are. Um, So that's why we have to make conscious efforts, I believe, to look at every little thing that happens and call it when we see it. Mm -hmm. It's not that we have the luxury of saying, well, that's not important right now. Let's just focus Mm -hmm. on it. Got to focus on everything. Um, And you got to teach your children to focus on everything, too, to be sensitive to... um, um, ongoing struggles. Um, the Elwa dams came down not because some modern native people and their allies decided we better take these dams down. They did it because it was a continuation of a hundred year struggle to take those dams down. Right. And people accepted that and adopted that. It was passed on to children and grandchildren and those dams came down. So for me it's um, generational, it's long term. Um, again, and that's why for me I do not mind pointing out some small thing because so many of the stories I've learned, it is the small things that make change happen, not the big, powerful, you know, epiphany. It's it's something small. That's why in the stories, it's, it's a little fly, it's a little ant, it's a little bird, it's a little girl. It's always something small that makes a great change happen. So <clears throat> I wanted to, I wanted to kind of... Uh asked a question you know I mean we we've talked a lot about you know just the uh, different kind of traumas and you know the struggles that a lot of native people go through how do we move towards healing god it's another giant 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 question and answer i don't know i think there's like steps i think that there's no one way and that like there's going to be a million different ways 
and that um, there are ways that we can work on collectively. Absolutely. Um, there's individual stuff we have to do. I think that in this culture, there's a focus on the individual to the detriment of the collective, mm. and that a lot of our problems get assessed and prescribed to according to on an individual basis. This is your problem, Fern. Here's what you can do about it. And, and as opposed to, this is what the system, how it's impacting you, yeah. Fern, and let's make an adjustment so we stop impacting you. <laughs> That's, you know, it's, it's all about getting us to be able to tolerate really unhealthy living conditions that we, I live under very unhealthy living conditions of high stress and, um, low income and and partly that's choice because I'm an artist but and and I have certainly have more choices than many because I've have a college degree and various kinds of professional experience and I'm a good bullshitter but <laughs> but 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 um um I don't know what my point was or where I was going with that but but um um Focusing on the collective, how do we make change? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything in this culture tends to get diagnosed individually. And as a culture, we tend not to, you know, have this macro view or this global overview of like, oh, my family's like, you know, so uh, emotionally overreactive because, you know, X, Y, and Z happened Thanks to, you know, there's always a context for everything that happens. And if you understand the context as a native person, of course, it helps. Right. I think as um, as a society as a whole, of course, we're utterly ignorant and uneducated, once again, by design, about who native people are and what our tribal sovereignty entails legally and culturally and socially. But... Um, uh that's why well that's why we're doing this podcast to like educate ourselves and everyone else about these issues and like get conversations happening but um we i think roger and i um probably both think of ourselves as educators almost before artists mm. just because i think we both spent our lives doing a lot of teaching and um, I think that uh, right now feels like a particularly like potent time to be an artist because we're like in this like post factual post <laughs> post I don't even know what you would call it <laughs> like we're like so inundated with facts and info right, much of right. which is suspect that you're just like i think the average american is just um super saturated and on a certain level news and information and facts per se aren't really making as much of an impact as they used to yeah. i know i'm just feeling a little desensitized yeah. and yeah. Uh, but what i'm not desensitized to in fact what i feel acutely attuned to right now is like music and art and mm. stories and that is getting me through right now 
And that is what's going to get everyone through. Mm-hmm. Now, the stories that we tell, yep. like what exactly. are those stories that we tell? Exactly. So yep. that's why I love the old stories. I love the traditional stories. And I like what Roger has said before. I can't remember who said it before you, but it was something like... Um, the stories aren't new, but it's our turn to tell them. Oh, that's yeah. great. Which is very cool. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's so important is being able to share our stories and having people willing to deeply listen to them as well, too. And, you know, inquire and ask questions about it all, you know, and what, what does this story mean? And, you know, just... Just really get into it. I mean, because right now it's like we can talk so much about diversity, equity, inclusion, and all of these things, but shit don't happen. It doesn't change if you're not going to change the system and the structure on how it's actually, you know, going to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, I quote this quote more often than not now because I just, when I first heard it, it kind of like, knocked me back it was a powerful to me quotation it was by a man named uh, meyer berliner who was killed in a treblinka concentration camp um fighting against the germans um they did have armed resistance to go escape to fight back and he was killed but one of his writings he wrote when the when the oppressor offers me two choices i always take the third and it was incredible for him it was you know work or die and he said no the third option is I fight and so oftentimes we native people and I I would say the the uh, colonized uh, people of the world um, which is almost everyone Mm -hmm. uh, we're given two choices and they're not our choices these are the choices we're given and the system the colonizer gives us the choices we must construct the third choice and we must act on the third choice. And so, as you said, to heal, um, there was a, an elder, uh, I come from the Tlalem tribe, the Nixclayam tribe, uh, northern Olympic Peninsula, the Elwa River. And this elder um, Quileute man said to me once, do you know how your people are? And I said, I'd like you to tell me, please, how are they? And he says, well, Imagine you're in one of the old villages, the old Clallam villages. He said, in, in the middle of the day, someone falls down on the ground and starts shaking and crying, and nobody knows why. They just fall down and start shaking and crying. He said, what your people would do is gather around that person, lay everyone lay down on the ground and start shaking and crying until that person could return. And so as soon as he said that, of course, the term community healing came into place. But the idea that we will heal, you are part of us, we are part of you, we will heal together. We're not going to question why this is happening. We just know we have to heal. Mm-hmm. So until we can get to that frame of consciousness, as I'm sure the system Wapton villages were the same, we will heal together. Um, I look at Western, I, especially when I go to the treatment centers and do storytelling, so much emphasis placed on the individual mm-hmm. in their treatment. You got to get counseling. You got to get treatment. You got to give up drinking. You got to do all these. You got to go to group. It's never about your community. Your family must do these things as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And until that we comes back, I think we'll continue to struggle because the Western idea of the individual being the sole source of everything um I think it's led us to where we are now. People who are isolated, anxious, um, uh, drug addicted, all these terrible things that I'm alone. I'm not connected with anyone and anything. 
And I think uh, I think it's vital that we begin to dismantle the things that that we are self-colonizing ourselves with, um, and uh, and and those are the things right now that we have control over. It, as the individual, are the things that are isolating us. Um, cable news, mm-hmm. stop watching it. You know, um, social, fate, media. Uh, social media. Good. You know, like take a break. You know, Vern. <laughs> Take a break. <laughs> you know, find these things that are that are isolating us, and and uh, and reach back out. Um, so, on that note, um, that was an awesome, awesome question to to end on. And so we mm-hmm. are going to do exactly that. Um, I am so <laughs> thankful for um, for these microphones that we've uh, that we've put into our studio living room here, <laughs> and I'm so thankful for our friends. Uh, Roger and Fern, and uh, and this is um, reconnection. This is community, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This You're is welcome. the real Facebook. This is the real <laughs> Facebook. All right. Well, that is this edition of the Plowline Podcast, and we want to thank everybody for uh, for joining us uh, on this Thanksgiving 2018 edition. Have a very good evening. All Goodbye. Right.